Our final offstage episode on nature focuses on the relationship between humans and elephants. I'm Trisha Johnson, the host of Aspen Ideas To Go. Today, my colleague Marcy Krivenin will introduce you to a man who's fighting poaching, development, and climate change to save one of the world's largest animals, the African elephant. Welcome back to the Aspen Ideas To Go offstage series on nature. I'm Marcy Krivenin, associate editor and producer for the Aspen Ideas Festival. Today's guest, Max Gomera from Zimbabwe, works with wildlife, particularly elephants. African elephants, which can weigh up to seven tons and live 70 years, have suffered for decades. Gomera has admired these beasts since he was a child. Now he's working to find a way for humans and elephants to live peacefully together. Gomera directs the Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services branch of the UN Environment Program. When he first started working with wildlife, Gomera helped create institutions for managing animals in Zimbabwe. It was through this work that he became attached to one animal in particular. I began to develop an interest in the elephant, of course. Um, it is an amazing animal. Uh, and I really wanted to study the elephant a lot more to understand um, a little bit of uh, its ecology, but more uh, what the, the interactions with humans were doing to the elephant. So I developed one of the first models, I believe, um, uh, around bio, we called it bioeconomic modeling uh, of the elephant, and this was just something that brought price and cost data uh, together with uh, ecological data to make us understand what was happening to the populations of elephants as humans, uh, you know, constricted their space, if you like, or as droughts happened, or when they were hunted or when the price of ivory went up and down, or when ivory markets were closed, what would happen to the elephant populations? So that was part of uh, my my early interest in um, wildlife in, in Africa. Although, of course, I'd grown up in a rural area and uh, I used to see wildlife, uh, but those are things that sometimes you take for granted and you think it's gonna be there. <laughs> right, right. Did you see the elephant population decline? Is that what um, got you interested in uh, collecting that data in the first place? That's right. So in the in the late 80s and in the 1990s, we faced what has become known as the elephant crisis in Africa, um, where elephant populations plummeted uh, from incredible pressure from from hunting, but also from other forms of uh, uh, offtake that were happening there. But poaching was the major, major crisis that we're facing. We're still facing a poaching crisis, although the levels have uh, have uh, have decreased. So um, my interest at that time was to better understand what was driving this and how could we work with the people who were looking after elephants to stop uh, this, uh, this crisis. Now, the part of Africa, Southern Africa, is very interesting where I was working. Uh, Southern Africa has got probably yeah, maybe over half of the elephant populations in the world. You find them in, the, in, that, part of the, in wow. that part of Africa. So there's quite a lot. But more interesting is that uh, over 60% of elephant range, with the places where elephants travel and move and feed and uh, with their families, is outside of state-protected areas. And in those areas... Elephants are looked after or interact with humans. Now, typically, that interaction is not like uh, you know 
let's go out for a date or something <laughs> like that. It can be brutal because mm. elephants can be pests and they are pests. Farmers regard them as pests uh, because they raid your crops and they're dangerous to, to humans. Mm -hmm. So part of the challenge there was to look at ways of ensuring that elephants became a, any, a, a legitimate way of uh, using land in communal areas, but also a profitable one. Mm -hmm. And that started my journey with uh, wildlife and uh, tourism and uh, working with people to look mm -hmm. after these animals. And is that what you do now? That's what I do right now. It is, uh, of course, now I'm looking at more species than uh, than elephants and I'm looking at more wild species than elephants. But the challenges have not changed that much. In fact, the challenges are getting worse. At the moment, we are facing a crisis. We are just about most species that you can think about are on the decline. We are shrinking and fragmenting wildlife spaces at an alarming rate. Now, if you think about the elephant again that I was talking about, we are losing uh, elephants at the rate of about 100 uh, per day. Now, this is because of human development? This is to poaching. This poaching. is uh, poaching, yeah. Human development is another big problem, and uh, I'll come back to that. But if you think about what we're doing with elephants, you know, losing 100 a day, if elephants were humans, this is what it would mean. We'd be losing the equivalent of the whole population of Botswana every week. Wow. Or we'll be losing twice the population of Kenya every year. That's how much we are taking out elephants. So it is a major crisis. Sure. But on the other hand, it's not just, the crisis is not just from poaching or from elephants dying. The crisis is also coming from humans uh, shrinking or fragmenting the habitats for these animals. Now, by some estimates, we are losing over 18 million uh, square kilometers of, of, of land, ev forests every, every, every year. That's like 27 football fields every minute. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned drought before. Um, this decline of species. Uh, does it does it connect at all with climate change? It does. Um, my background is not very much into ecology, so but uh, but uh, but what we found from the literature, uh, from the work of those people who who did a lot of their work on elephants, is that whenever there's a drought, elephants tend to delay eustress. You know, they don't reproduce. Now. In the days when I was working on elephants, what used to happen is, uh, you know, the, the gestation period for elephants was about 22 months. So they would have a, an offspring every, you know, I don't know, five years or so. Um, but when there's a drought, they delay that. Uh, and this is a coping mechanism. Now, the frequency of droughts in those years was in southern Africa was about once every 10 years or something like that. But that period has become much shorter we're looking at droughts once every three years, once every five years. So what it means is, in addition to the human pressures on on elephants, climate change and other pressures are also putting pressure on wildlife populations. Given that uh, climate change is here, it's impacting the survival of species, um, it's a challenge for animals, but is there a connection to human beings as well? I mean, how do we rely on um, the the continued survival of anim of these animals that you study, yes, uh, of course, animals, um, the bigger ones and the smaller ones, the smaller animals like 
bees are very important to our food supply. The, the habitats and ecosystems in which these animals live are incredibly important to our agricultural food supply. Um, yet what we're finding is that the threats to these habitats and the threats to these animals are coming from a far more ordinary human pursuit. You know, the production of beef and the production of uh, meat for ourselves, the production of agricultural crops for ourselves, it is the number one threat to, to wildlife habitats. Um, and it is having a huge impact around the world. Just to give you a sense of what we're doing, if you take the, the, our search for protein, about 37% of um, human, humans rely on beef as a source of protein. Yet the production of beef takes up about 80% of agricultural land. So this is, there's a disproportionate relationship there. Right. And the question has to be, you know, we need to rethink where we are getting our protein sources. Where is the other 67% getting its protein source from? And is it something that we can start working with the other people who are, who are getting their proteins from, from beef uh, to make a transition towards or to reduce the amount of beef that uh, people are, are, are taking in, given that we now have a crisis. We have reached a crisis in terms of uh, what the cattle industry, the beef industry, is, um, is, is doing on nature. Hmm. Right, right. I mean, it's contributing to greenhouse gas emissions as That's well. That's right. It contributes to greenhouse gas, a lot of greenhouse gases as well. So it is, it is a crisis, and uh, it's one that now requires us to fundamentally look at uh, how we are feeding ourselves in the 21st century, how we're using the limited space that we've got in the 21st century. Human populations are growing, and the fundamental infrastructure, the fundamental uh, ecosystems that we need to support a growing human population are being degraded at an alarming rate. So something has to happen, and we've got to do it now. It sounds bleak. It, it, th- let's be clear. Um, if we continue along the pathway that we are in, yes, it is bleak. But the good news is that there are solutions and we can change. We've started to see now countries like, uh, like Bhutan that are beginning to think about um, how we can use uh, green spaces differently. We're beginning to work with countries around the world who are beginning to look at um, uh, how do we uh, start uh, ensuring that our impacts, what we are drawing from nature, is reflected in the pricing of what comes to our dinner table, for example. So one of the things that is really, really encouraging that I've seen in the last six months is the decision by the British government, for example, to start linking farm subsidies to the actual delivery of public goods. So uh, the British government is saying that in, a, uh, in the future, they will be paying farm subsidies to those farmers who can demonstrate that they are delivering public goods, such as setting aside their land for pollinators or mm. for production of water or any other resource. So that there's incentives for there's those There's an incentive farmers. for it, yeah. At the moment, the way the subsidy system works is uh, is pervasive and it's it's doing a net damage, and it's not it's not. It's more about linked. quantity, probably output, 
and less about preservation? Less about preservation. That's right. Mm. That's right. So we can see governments are starting to review that. And uh, that is that is uh, very, very encouraging. We've just also released a report around um, what we called the ecosystems, the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity for the agricultural and food industry. What this report was doing was to start looking into the relationship between agriculture and nature. What is agriculture drawing from nature? How much of it is it drawing? And what is it worth to the food that comes on our dinner table? Once we understand that, we'll make sure that that will enable us to 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 make sure that the price of a hamburger that comes to our dinner table reflects the actual cost of water, ecosystem services, and everything else that nature is giving to us. Can you imagine if that was on the menu? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to happen. It's moving there, and um, sometimes out of uh, necessity, but more. Uh, encouraging because humans are beginning to realize that it is an existential problem. And last question, as as a single individual, uh, no matter what country you're from, uh, what can you, you know, what can we do? Should we be more um, aware of what we're eating, uh, more aware of where the hamburger we just ordered came from? Uh, absolutely. I think that uh, the first step is to be aware of your own uh, impacts on, 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 on the global, on the planet. So that includes looking at your own lifestyle. How much are you consuming? How, where is that food being produced? And uh, what choices can you make uh, in your life that could ensure that we are not putting a lot more pressure on resources than what is needed? It is a very finite world and we've got to share it with animals, with plants and uh, with all the economic activities that sustain us. In the absence of that, our future as a human species is in greater peril. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Max Gomera was deputy director of the UN Environment World Conservation Monitoring Center. He also served as a project manager for the International Union for Conservation of Nature. He spoke in June at Spotlight Health. I'm Marcy Krivenen, associate producer and editor for the Aspen Ideas Festival team. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Thanks for listening.